Thank you. Um, I told you it was going to be a nice time of worship, right? <laughs> oftentimes, oftentimes, some of the best is, is during rehearsal. And I know for me, that's where I can kind of center and ground myself and get ready to, to come in here and preach a message. And I, I was disappointed that I didn't get that time tonight. I felt a little flustered, but man, now I, I'm, I'm in that place. So get ready. We're going we're gonna to preach it tonight. It used to be that movie sequels had to go in chronological order. So, like, if you grew up, you know, 70s and 80s like I did, it was Rocky 1, 2, 3, 4, and then I think they did 5 and Creed and some other. But, but it went in chronological order. And, and so I pity the fool that doesn't know that Apollo Creed comes before Mr. T. That's just how it's supposed to go. But now it seems, especially you high schoolers here, that those rules no longer apply. I mean, it's the Star Wars universe, and you go forward, and you go backwards, and you go sideways, and Marvel, I mean, it's not even like the movie characters can't even stay in their own movie. They're bouncing around back and forth. It's different actors, they'll do Spider-Man 15 different times with 15 different actors and animate it one of the times, and that's just how things are today. Well, we're doing 50 days of Easter. And I actually chose 50 days for a reason in the liturgical churches. If you're, you're part of a, a Lutheran church or the Catholic church, maybe in, in Methodist churches, I think they do a liturgical kind of church calendar where, where week by week throughout the, the year they follow a certain order of things. And it goes in that order every year and the church puts it out. I love the idea of 50 days of Easter, but we're not a liturgical church that goes through the church calendar. And so I thought we'd do 50 days of Easter, but we're going to do it in the modern way. We're not going to go in any chronological order. We're going to play loose and free with the rules. And so we're going to go backwards, and we're going to go forwards, and we're going to go sideways, and we're going to take that box, and we're going to turn it sideways and look at it from 10 different angles as we go through these next 50 days of Easter together as a church. We'll end on May 22nd with Pentecost, which is where the liturgical system actually goes. That's where they always end um, the 50 days of Easter. So we will end where they end with Pentecost there in the, uh, in the room and the disciples and the um, tongues of fire and all of that. Now, I've had people over the years come through this church, and they would say, I'm looking for a life-giving church. I had never heard that phrase before, life-giving church. In fact, there's been a lot of people I'm connected with, and they're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're a life-giving church. They'll say that about their church, or people will come here, and I didn't really know what they meant. I'm like, is it about the music? They want life-giving music that's kind of upbeat and positive, or, or do they want, you know, just a, a really great group of people that lifts them up? And I've learned that that is what some of them meant, or they want to be noticed, they want to be appreciated, or they want to feel the, the life-giving power of the Spirit, and they want life transformation. If you ever see a church with life in the title, they are consider themselves a life-giving church. But the more I've heard that phrase and, and kind of dug into it, and the churches that promote this life-giving attitude, what I've learned is, is what people actually mean is, I don't want to go to a church that talks about what a sinner I am. Basically, I want to come in, I want to get a 20-minute TED Talk about how I'm already a pretty good person, uh, but God's got more in store from you, and here's how God wants to prosper your life, or here's three easy steps to be a better dad, or a better husband, or a better whatever. But if every week we come in here, and we ignore how broken we are, it's like some of those filters some of y'all use on Snapchat that's got the slimming effect, and... <laughs> You're not really fooling anybody. 
Or it's the same reason that post-COVID, I've yet to get on a scale because I think if I don't get on that scale, I can ignore those extra 20 pounds that I put on during COVID. And so my hope is always as a church that we can see by what the worst shape we're in that we know that we'll also see Jesus, that we have more hope than we could ever imagine. And so tonight, we're going to look at three people that can help us maybe see some of that brokenness in our lives. And it's three people in the Easter story that can help us look in the mirror. These are three people who abandoned Jesus when he needed them the most. Two weeks ago, we looked at the Passover meal. And if you remember, Jesus is using the bread and the wine, and he's telling the story of the Lamb of God that we sang about so well tonight. And he says this in Luke chapter 22, verse 15. He says to his disciples, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. A lot of emotion in that statement from Jesus. I have eagerly desired since eternity past to have this meal with you tonight because it's the last night of my life. It's the last time I'll be with you, my closest friends, this side of death. Well, if we could, just like the movies do today, Let's go backwards in time now from that scene. And it's the triumphant entry. entry. It's, it's Palm Sunday. And a lot of people think it was just a spontaneous uprising and people throwing out pawns. There was nothing spontaneous about it. It was planned. It was thought out by Jesus. Because here he is. He's publicly declaring himself as the Messiah, as the king. And so he chose how he wrote in and when he wrote in. And what he's trying to do is push the envelope. He's trying to force the religious leaders to make a choice. And the choice they have to make is either bow down and worship me as the Messiah or kill me. It's the only two choices that they have. And so again, like the movies do, let's flash forward a little bit, but not quite back to where we were. Luke chapter 22, verse 1, then begins this way. The festival of unleavened bread, it's the Passover, was approaching. It says the leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus. Well, it seems they made their choice. It's not to worship Jesus, it's to kill Jesus. Uh, It says they were afraid of the people's reactions. Uh, Verse 3 says, then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples. And I'll stop right there because we need to remember, before we dig down too deep into Judas, that he was one of the 12. He was one that was handpicked by Jesus. He's one that gave up everything to follow Jesus. This is a guy who spent three and a half years traveling around all of Israel with Jesus. He saw the miracles firsthand. He saw Jesus heal the sick. He saw Jesus raise the dead. He heard all the teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, the parables, the the good shepherd, the lost sheep. Not only that, Judas is a leader in the group. The apostles chose him to handle the money. And you don't pick somebody whose loyalty is suspect to handle the money. If you don't know, Lorraine Guheim handles our finances here at Refuge. And the reason we chose her is I've known her forever, and I have a deep, deep, deep trust for her. It's not going to be any embezzlement happening here at Refuge because I know Lorraine and I trust her in that. But most importantly, Judas was a friend of Jesus. And so it continues, uh, he's there with the twelve, and Judas went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus. Verse 5 says they were delighted, and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity. Judas has decided to sell out Jesus. Why? 
Why, why does Judas do this? Well, it's, it's a highly debated question. I'll give you some of the popular answers. Some people say it's the money. You know, Judas betrayed Jesus for those uh, 20 or 30 pieces of silver. I forget what the other gospel says, but um, I do know that that's not very much money. And I, I read through the commentaries this week. Some people said, you know, it's 200 bucks. That's all it was. And some people said it's a, a month's salary, which is a little bit more money. Another guy, you know, took inflation and all these things into, and said it's $20,000. Either way, the point is, it's not a huge sum of money. I mean, $20,000 is a lot of money, but for somebody's life, it's, it's not a lot. We know also from John chapter 12 that Judas was greedy. Uh, there's a record in there of him stealing from the, the pot of money that they had for their ministry. And so some people say it's the money. Some people say it's, he's disillusioned. That's kind of a prevailing theory today that, that the disciples were, you know, expecting Jesus to be the Messiah, but they wanted him to be a David-like Messiah. And so Judas got tired of waiting around. Jesus just had his triumphal entry. All right, here we go. He's the king. It's time. But then Jesus goes back to doing what he always did. Talk, talk, and more talking. And so some say Judas is trying to force Jesus' hand, believing that after Jesus is arrested, of course, he'll save himself and he'll then finally assume the throne. It's a popular theory today. Some people say it's fear that he simply wanted to save his own skin, knowing that they're probably going to kill him, so let me at least save myself. And I think we like those black and white answers, you know, one or the other, but it's probably a lot more nuanced. It's probably a combination of all of the above. For an example, you know, if somebody has an affair, you know, we can try to point to one reason why that person had an affair, but it really was a multitude of bad decisions and poor life choices that led to that affair. It's more nuanced. What we do know from Scripture and what Luke tells us is that Satan entered Judas. And some, maybe you're like me, you're like, well, dang, poor Judas. He didn't have a choice. Satan entered into him. He's now demon-possessed. He no longer has control of his actions. And let me just state that I believe that humans always have a choice. And yes, Satan has made a relentless assault on Judas's soul, but he does that to all of us. And yes, Judas opened that door by stealing from the ministry budget, but he allowed Satan to get a stronger foothold by keeping that sin in the dark. He never tells anybody about that. So if he had brought it out into the light, if he'd been transparent, if he'd been out honest about his sin, perhaps Satan would have had very little chance to enter into his mind and soul. But when we walk in darkness, we are inviting Satan, as always, into our lives. And so we've got Judas Iscariot. Now that's not a name that we're going to find any of the kids back here in children's ministry. I don't think. Uh, there's a band called Judas Priest, but I think that came after the fact, heavy metal band from the 60s and 70s. We don't sing Hey Jude, or we, we do sing Hey Jude, we don't sing Hey Judas, that wouldn't, we just don't like that name. I mean, so Judas has got this like major villain criteria, but is Judas really that bad of a guy? In college, we read uh, Dante's Inferno. I don't know if anybody's ever read that. It's an old book um, from the Catholic Church. It's about purgatory, these levels of hell. And um, the deeper you go down into purgatory, the, the higher the penance is that you have to pay. And um, you just keep going down and down and down into these levels of hell, and depending on how good or bad you lived on earth. Not biblical at all, just by the way, but, it, but it's an interesting read if you ever want to read it. And in that book, Dante goes to the depth of hell, the lowest of low circles in hell. And interesting, in the book, it's not a lake of fire, as most people would think. It's actually Disney World. That's not true. 
It is kind of true, but uh, it's actually a lake of ice. And so Dante is like a lot of us in Florida, knowing that freezing to death for the rest of your life would be absolute hell. But he makes a lake of ice the lowest degree of hell. And in this lake of ice, you find the worst villains in history, the greatest of which, Dante says, is Judas. There he is, trapped under the ice, tormented forever, literally being eaten or consumed by Satan. So that's kind of the old school view on Judas. He is the worst villain in all of history. A more modern view, really in the last 70, 80 years, is to cast him more as this heroic rebel. He's a, he's a social justice warrior who's really just trying to help. But I'll be honest, the Bible doesn't support either of those views. What we see from the writers of the gospel is that he isn't the greatest villain in all of time. He isn't a hero. The most striking thing that we learn about Judas is he's ordinary. He's just like the other disciples. He's one of the guys. He's like a lot of us. And so here we are at the Last Supper. Meals wrapping up. Jesus talked about the bread, talked about the blood being the new covenant. In verse 21, he says, But here at this table, sitting among us, what's he say again? As a friend, is the man who will betray me. For it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him. And so now, so far, we've seen the prequel. We know the ending. We know that Jesus is talking about Judas. But the disciples have no clue. And so verse 23, it says, The disciples began to ask each other, Which of them would ever do such a thing? Matthew chapter 26, verse 22 says, Greatly distressed, each disciple asked each other in turn, Am I the one, Lord? The disciples, every single disciple were told, Ask Jesus, all 12 of them, Am I the one? That's an odd question, because wouldn't they know if they were the one, first of all? Also, it's strange, because when we read the Gospels, any, no other time that I can think of, anyway, do the disciples ever show weakness. They always get this bravado. They're always boasting about their strengths. But this time, they take a different tone. They say, is it me, Lord? And I think that that's because they know the clock is ticking. They know something is stirring. And they know if they don't join the enemy, they're probably also going to be imprisoned or killed. And so they say, am I the ones? These disciples understand that they're all capable of being the one to betray Jesus. And so Judas is not very different than the other disciples. And as I said, Judas is not very different than a lot of us. If Judas were here tonight, he'd probably got here early, probably been here for the rehearsal we were having, and he'd probably be sitting here on the front row. Hello there, Judas. Sorry, Scott. He'd sang the songs, he'd raise his hand, he'd probably even give an amen during the sermon, which I sometimes wish there was a Judas here to do that. <laughs> Judas might be sitting next to you tonight, or he might be sitting even closer than that. Should you be asking yourself, could I be the one, Lord? How might I be a Judas? And here's how. When life is rolling along, when, when it, things were going as they were supposed to be and it was the end thing to be on Team Jesus, when there was prosperity, when Jesus was quote-unquote life-giving, Judas was all in. But as soon as there was a cost, as soon as the storms came, as soon as there were trials, he abandons Jesus. 
I had to talk to my financial advisor this week. I'm 45. I do want to retire at some point in life. And so we're just having a conversation about that. We were talking about this booming market that's going on out there, which I said makes no sense to me whatsoever. I took Econ 101, and nothing that's happening makes any sense to what I learned in college. But when the market is going up and stocks are going up, man, it's exhilarating. And there's this buying frenzy. I mean, everybody wants to buy stocks. The last tattoo I got, I swear the tattoo artist the entire time gave me stock tips, which he had never done before. And I'm not bashing tattoo guys that can't buy stocks, but that was just unique for him to give me stock advice. But that's the frenzy, the buying frenzy that's happening in the market. But I will tell you, and I know this from the past, that when things turn, and those stocks begin to decline in value, and they start to cost us, then those stocks will be sold, and there will be a sell-off. For many of us, when the sun is up in our lives, it's, God is so good. We'll be posting on Facebook, God is so amazing. He is risen indeed. I saw that on Easter a bunch. Then the storms come. Or there's a cost to being obedient. We have to let go of that sin. Or we get some kind of devastating news. Or we have financial ruin in our lives. Or prayers are going unanswered. And we decide to sell Jesus. We bail out. And if we can be honest with ourselves tonight, there's a Judas probably lurking within all of us. And we should be asking, is it I, Lord? Because we want to manage God, not serve God. We want to control God, not surrender to God. And maybe you've never verbalized that, but many of us have expectations on God. God, give me a good life. God, you owe me safety. God, you owe me security for all I've done. And so when God doesn't meet or live up to those expectations, you feel cheated. And every time we feel cheated by God, we crack the door open a little more for Satan to walk in and speak into our lives. Let's juxtaposition now from Judas's betrayal to Peter's denial. That's the second person tonight who is abandoning Jesus. Verse 24 says, a dispute arose among them, among the disciples, as to which one of them was considered to be the greatness, greatest. And the humility is short-lived, the self-examination is short-lived, they're back to being the normal disciples. There's bravado, there's boasting, they're dreaming of the status and the power. And I won't read it all, but Jesus just patiently reminds them that his kingdom is different than this world. He says, it ain't going to be like that. The least will be the greatest. The greatest will be the least. And then he says this, verse 31, Simon, Simon. Interesting thing, you know, Simon has been renamed Peter at this point, but Jesus uses his old name, and he repeats it twice, which is just this intensity, and it's kind of this, this loving way of saying his name like you would your kid. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you, not just, Satan, uh, not just Simon, but each of you like wheat. He says, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Verse 33, Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you. I am even ready to die with you. Verse 34, but Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. We won't read the whole story, but spoiler alert, Jesus is right, Peter is wrong. So perhaps you think Peter's sin then is that denial. It's like the Christian who denies being uh, a Christian when they're asked or, you know, don't live their lives as Christians or, you know, there were people posting that he has risen indeed on Easter and I'm like, I had no idea you were a follower of Jesus. I'd never seen that in your life before. But Peter's sin here isn't that, although that that comes later. His sin right here is overconfidence in himself. 
It's just an arrogance. Jesus, you got the wrong guy. I'm strong. I would never deny you. My name is Peter. Don't you remember? I'm the rock. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, you're going to die me not once, not twice, three times in a single night when I needed you most. I'm on a lot of business forums with other insurance agents. We kind of talk to each other about our businesses and how we hire and so forth. And several of my fellow agents, they have life coaches that they've hired to, to speak truth into their life and help them be better business people. Or they listen to podcasts by guys like Tony Robbins and those kind of people. And nothing wrong with any of that. But what I've learned through these guys is the consensus thinking in, in our modern times, the key to being successful is confidence. You got to believe in yourself. You can't doubt yourself. And they'll post these like, you know, motivational memes with clouds and whatever, a mountain in the background says, if you believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything, which is a very similar message that you'll hear on a lot of Sunday mornings. Now, listen, I can believe that I can be an NBA superstar and I can train for 12 hours a day and I can hire the best coaches. But at the end of the day, I'm still 5'11", unathletic, and have a 10-inch vertical. I cannot be an NBA superstar, no matter how much I believe in myself. Or maybe you've seen the American Idol auditions, and some parent told their, their kid, you can, you can, if you believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything, and they show up and they audition for American Idol. No, some people are simply tone deaf. Not everybody can, can be a beautiful singer. I read a book, Hope Has Its Reasons, by Becky, Becky Piper. Here's what she said. She says, here is where we Christians part company decisively with modern culture. It tells us to ignore our self-doubts and to feel only positive thoughts about ourselves. But I'm saying the opposite. Pay attention to those lurking doubts. Listen closely to that nagging discontent. She says, yes, it is important to have a healthy self-esteem. That's important. It's important to have a healthy self-esteem. But the irony is that the best road to health lies in the direction of realism about the sickness. Those who want the last in their lives to be the best must face the worst first. Let me read that again. Those who want the last in their lives to be the best must face the worst first. It is only in giving up on ourselves that we can go beyond ourselves and then find ourselves. Peter is confident. He's not going to not deny Jesus. He believes in himself. And it's precisely that overconfidence that keeps him from exploring the possibility that he just might. I see that all the time. I, I'd never cheat on my spouse. I would never do that. And how many have said that and then cheated on their spouse? They've been so overconfident that they refuse to consider the possibility, and so they're unprepared when Satan attacks We'll see somebody, I've been sober for four years. I will never go back to drinking or drugs. I've got this thing beat. And then in that confidence, the person stops doing all the things that they did to get well in the first place. I would never let my eight-year-old sit and watch an iPad for two hours. Exactly. We should be just laughing at that. I got nothing else because we all should be laughing at that. <laughs> confidence. Come, Give me a break. I could never walk away from Jesus. How many Christians have boldly at least thought that to themselves, never considering that when life comes crashing down, that they'll be tempted to walk away? Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Satan 
that prowling lion. He loves an overconfident Christian. See, self-confidence mixed with humility can be powerful, and it'll do great things in your life. But self-confidence with a lack of self-awareness can be devastating. Many of the losses to sin are a result of a failure to know ourselves, to know our capabilities, to know our propensities, to know our own weaknesses. Peter may even have some doubts in himself, but he's unwilling to admit it or explore it. Instead, what's he do? He gets defensive. No way, Jesus. He thumps his chest. Don't lump me in with those other losers, the other disciples. I'm the one who would never leave your side. And again, the irony is that's precisely the problem and why he later abandons Jesus, because he's unwilling now to admit his weaknesses. And so maybe you're sitting here right now, dang, man, I need to start looking for a life-giving church. I'm at the wrong place. But that's just it. A flourishing, beautiful life is someone who is self-aware enough not to sell Jesus at the first sign of trouble or end up in a pit of despair due to their overconfidence. And so we have to be aware of that brokenness. We also need to be aware that both of these disciples sin, the root of it, comes down to a misunderstanding of God's grace. In Matthew's gospel, right after Jesus tells Peter, you will only abandon me not only once, twice, but three times, he immediately quotes Isaiah 53. Those are those Bible verses I had Brandy read beautifully earlier. So Peter says, I will not abandon you. And Jesus quotes, Simon, Simon, you're so weak, I'm about to suffer and die because of you. You're so weak, I will be despised and rejected because of you. I will be beaten so you can be made whole. I will be whipped so you can be healed. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter and Judas, who, by the way, has not left the room, he's still there too, he says, you guys just don't understand grace, what I'm about to do for you. So we look around and we have this tendency, and we've said this before in here, and to say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm at least better than most people, or I'm at least better than those people. And then we say, I've done everything you ask of me, God, so now, now you owe me. It's a misunderstanding of grace. If we go to Mark's gospel, right before this scene of Judas betraying Jesus, we get a story of another person. Her name's Mary, and she's there, and she's bathing Jesus' feet. If you remember, she uses that, like, really expensive perfume. It probably costs more than what Judas got for this, this betrayal. And she uses not just a little bit of that perfume, because you got to break the bottle to get it open. And she takes it, and she takes this expensive, stupid expensive, cristal perfume, and she dumps the entire bottle on Jesus' feet. And everybody, in particular Judas, say, that's too expensive. What a waste. We could have used that for something so much more practical and Jesus says, don't bother her. What she has done is a beautiful thing, and people will talk about it forever. And here we are still talking about it. And so there's that beautiful scene. And the very next verse, and I don't think it's a coincidence, verse 10 says, then Judas Iscariot, after that scene, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus. We're like Judas when we believe that God owes us. We're like Mary when we can realize that God owes us absolutely nothing and we owe him absolutely everything. That we're not saved because we're better than anyone else, but because Jesus gave up everything for me. And so Mary is the antithesis to Judas. So let me give you the antithesis for Peter. We go to Matthew chapter 15. There's a Canaanite woman 
And if you remember the story, she begs Jesus to heal her daughter. And it's a really difficult statement. Jesus actually refuses her request, and he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it out to the dogs. And taken out of context, we, especially in our English, it sounds like Jesus would be really awful to this woman. He's calling her a dog. But Jesus is just using words that, that would help them understand or idioms that would help them understand uh, those that are listening around him. And so Jesus says to Simon, Simon, you're going to deny me. And Peter arrogantly says, no way, Lord, I would never do that. Jesus says to this woman some harsh words, you're a dog. And the woman very humbly says, yes, Lord, I am. But she says, but even a dog can eat the scraps that fall from their master's table. Just humility in that statement. Jesus answers, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And so the moral of the story is, is that Jesus should have chosen women to be his disciples and not men. <laughs> also, the moral of the story is, <laughs> these women understand grace far more than Judas and Peter. But I want you to see in the story, there is hope. Verse 31, we'll read it again. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus doesn't say, Simon, if you repent, I'll pray for you. He says, I'll pray for you. And because of that, you'll turn back to me. Let's do one more go back in time, the prodigal son story. The son, if you remember, he goes away and goes to Vegas or wherever and has a good time. And then he finally comes home and the son's walking up the driveway and the father is there waiting. And he doesn't wait for the son to even get up the driveway. He runs out to the son first and he kisses him and he hugs him. The father doesn't say, if you repent, son, and say you're sorry for everything that you did, then I'll kiss you, then I'll clothe you. The father just grabs him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He shows his love to the son so that it's easy for the son to come home. The love of Jesus always comes first. The grace of Jesus always comes first. So he doesn't say to Peter, Peter, come crawling back to me, and then maybe, maybe I'll reach out to you. He says, Peter, let me show you my love, that I'm here still praying for you, even though I know you're going to abandon me. And because of that, you'll be able to turn back to me. And Jesus does the same thing with Judas, but it's a little harder to discern. Matthew chapter 26, verse 50. It's the same section where Judas uh, greets Jesus with a kiss. And so Judas has came to the garden. He's, he's greeted Jesus with the kiss to betray him. You know the story. And Jesus has this interesting response. He says, my friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. He doesn't say, you liar, you thief, you deplorable human being. He uses that same word. He says, Judas, my friend, do you betray me with a kiss? Judas, my friend, do you know what you're doing? Jesus is counseling Judas. He's still trying to draw him back. Now, we know the story that Peter does turn back, and we're going to look at that in two or three weeks um, when Jesus returns and a beautiful conversation with Peter, which is one of my favorite in Scripture. So we'll get to that. But Peter does turn back to Jesus. But we were talking about this when we had our hour delay earlier. I so said we had a little Bible study while we were sitting here killing time. Why not? And the question Brandy and I were discussing is, does Judas 
Just Judas turn back to Jesus? Does he accept Jesus' gift of grace? And I'll be honest, I don't know. Most will say no. And I would say I've studied scripture enough that there's a lot of references to support that stance. And so it would be the more popular and likely. We do know from scripture that Judas shows remorse. But remorse isn't the same as repentance. Does he actually turn back to God? And so I wouldn't give it good odds that we show up to heaven and Judas is going to be there. But I also, to be honest, I wouldn't be totally surprised either if he was there. But here's what I know. His betrayal of Jesus is not an unforgivable sin. His suicide is not an unforgivable sin. God's grace can cover them both. If I never meet Judas when I get to heaven, it's only because he never accepted God's gift of grace. I said in the beginning, we'd look at three people who abandoned Jesus, who rejected Jesus, who deserted Jesus. Last week, we talked about the garden. Remember, Jesus is there praying And for the very first time, God opens up the cup of suffering before him. He sees what the cup is going to look like. And remember we talked about having for an eternity lived in this perfect loving relationship with the Father. God is showing him now in that garden a foretaste of hell. And hell is God's abandonment. That's the true wrath of God is God saying, I'll give you what you want. I'm going to abandon you now. But he's shown that in the garden, Jesus is. And I was thinking about it this week. If you've ever been deserted by somebody when you needed them, and, and you know maybe it's like you needed to change a tire and they never showed up, or I don't know. But if anybody's ever deserted you in your life and let you down when you needed them, you kind of know the pain, pain of that, right? And so now then, imagine your closest friend. And for a lot of us, that might be our spouses. That's my closest friend. Now imagine that person abandoning you. Not only doing it, but, but doing it when you needed them the absolute most. And so the closest person in your life abandoning you when you needed them the most. Now take that, times about 108 billion, and you get just a glimpse of the pain of abandonment that Jesus has shown that he's going to experience on the cross. And there's still a chance, remember, in the garden for Jesus to walk away. To walk away and abandon the plan, abandon us who will eventually abandon him over and over, but Jesus doesn't. He sees the cup, he sees the suffering, and he says, I love these people so much that I'll even endure the abandonment of the Father to save them. That's life-giving. If you want to be a part of a life-giving church, that's the message you ought to be hearing. I can stand here all I want and say, dream it and you can achieve it, Or set your mind to it and you can accomplish anything and it might sound good and I can scream and yell and dance around the stage and you'll walk out of here motivated for a moment. But if the goal here at Refuge is to be a life-giving church, then what you need to hear and what I need to hear over and over and over again, that if hell itself didn't get Jesus to abandon you, There is nothing you could ever do to destroy his love for you. Regardless of how messed up you are, and you are, you're messed up. God will never let you go. God will never leave you. God will never fail you. God will never betray you. And if we can take that good news to heart, that's life-giving. 
because then we can deal with failure and we can deal with the guilt in life and we can deal with life not being fair and we can deal with suffering and we can forgive people and we can love people. It's life-giving. We won't be a Judas. We won't sell Jesus at the first sign of trouble because we'll already know what he's done for us because of his love. And we won't be an overconfident Peter because we'll know what train wrecks we are and what Jesus had to do for us. And so in those moments when you betray Christ, and you will, when you turn from God, and you will, even when you thought you weren't going to, listen to Jesus calling you his friend. Look to Jesus being abandoned by his Father so you never have to be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you will never abandon us. God, I just ask that that grace, knowing that you knew what wrecks we were, and you died for us and you saved us anyway, that that knowledge be what transforms our life, that that knowledge is what gives us life that propels us forward, that we take that good news and we share it with others. And we share it with our families and we share it with anybody who will listen and we even share it to those who won't. God, we thank you so much for that grace and mercy given to us by the blood of the Lamb. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.